0: Welcome, everybody. It's obviously an incredible mm-hmm. honor to be standing here. We're really honored to have John O'Connor here, mm-hmm. who's Secretary and Treasurer of Irish Heritage Quebec. Welcome. Thank you. <laughs> the idea of the talk is to give you a little information on the Irish in Quebec City and also in the surrounding area. You'll see different representations of what happened, and I've managed to sneak a few of my family members into some of the uh, presentation. There we go. Anyway, usually when, we, when I do this, I have to put a little thing or two in there to, so people can catch up on their Irish history, which probably is not needed with the group that I have here. But we always show them the Ulster, the province, and what is now the north of Ireland and the various spots. You know, my family is from Six Mile Bridge, County Clare. And I also do a little bit of explaining to people that the effect of the various plantations and how over a, over a period of years that the, the Irish Catholics ended up owning very little of the land and the, the types of areas that were given to various soldiers or English nobility were obviously the most fertile lands in Ireland and as you went west you were in another sort of agricultural situation and where the potato crop was an essential and there's always a little mention of the penal laws which I refer to the fact that the land ownership decreased immensely over the years into 1714 Catholics owned 9% of the 7% story of the land Now the Irish arrived, started arriving in Quebec City, in sufficient numbers in the early part of the 19th century. Now I'm not saying there were no Irish here in the late 1700s, there obviously were, some were in the British military, others also arrived, but they were not a significant number to constitute what I would call a community. So in the early 1810 to 1830, 35-40 period, there was uh, still a rather large immigration of Irish to Quebec City, Irish of all religious confessions Catholics, Anglicans, Presbyterians and here you see Quebec City and you'll notice I put some green dots all along the, the north ring of the area. Now these were all communities where the early settlers were promised a tract of land. So they established there. Now we're not talking agriculture here, we're talking forest. So they would be up there and they would have a certain amount of time to uh, establish a residence. In some areas there was already a building that had been put up for them to facilitate the first year because the problem was always to get set up before winter arrived. And of course lumbering was one of the main activities that provided uh, revenue for the various people there. So if you look up there, you got St. Bridget de Laval. You know, Bridget is obviously an Irish saint of major importance. Stoneham, Tewksbury, where you see they got St. Gabriel de Valcartier, that's the... But it's, they got Village Vacances Valcartier, which is an amusement park that's popular all across Canada. And you have Shannon, which came into existence in 1946, but the Irish population had been there since the early 1800s. And you have St. Catherine de la Jacques Cartier, which initially was St. Patrick's Station. Why? Because this was part of a seigneurie. A seigneurie is like an old estate. That's the name it has here. And the, the owner had the responsibility of bringing in settlers to sort of develop the area and this owner who was obviously French Canadian felt that the Irish who had experience on the land in Ireland and were reputedly hard workers would be the best people to develop the area and that's why the, this was known as St. Patrick's Station because there even in the early 1800s you see birth records in the the parish of St. Augustine de Demore, which St. Catherine was attached to at the time where they talk about the Irish community on the Jacques Cartier, which is the name of the river that goes through there. Okay? Cool. Now, the Irish in Quebec City, well, they arrived also in that era, and there were a large number. And, of course, they obviously were pleased with the fact that the Catholics were pleased with the fact that they were coming into an environment that was mostly Catholic, or at least majority Catholic, I'm sure you all saw the Anglican Cathedral at one time during your stay. It was built in the early 1800s. The St. Andrews is just near there. It was built 189, 1810. And there's other churches of other denominations that were here. If you were in one of the, those denominations, you usually fit in with that community and we sort of lose track of you as an Irish settler. Okay, because you're in a larger community with English Scottish and others the Catholics, well they arrived and their problem was they wanted um, to have a priest who could preach them in a language they understood and French was not that language so the diocese had a problem they said well where are we going to where are they going to go for religious service for mass so you see the chapel of the congregation or those who were out on the walking tour we saw that this morning they were there for three years and then for, for 22 to 28 they had an 8 o'clock mass at the Basilica the three years, for 28 to 33 they were down in Notre Dame de Victoire Church which in no way could accommodate the population of Irish people that wanted to attend so certain people were lucky they got to listen to mass out in the square now the, the reason I mention this and the interest for people who are doing genealogy is that in 1833 St. Patrick's Church comes on the scene but you're going to see, even in those the ones on each end there if your birth is registered there, it'll be in Notre Dame de Quebec Parish and not in these chapels, so that's where the baptisms would have most likely taken place Go ahead, now of course you were at Gross Hill yesterday, so this just shows you where Gross Hill was it was opened in 1832 because the previous year in Europe there was a cholera epidemic and it was likely that the cholera would arrive here the year after. That's the way it works with epidemics. Starts there and moves westward. Quebec City lost about 3,000 people during the 1832 cholera epidemic. And the problem at the time was where do you bury them? And the solution is always as far out of town as you can get. In town, but as far away from the area. So the, the area chosen is the area, you see the Salaberry Street and Grand Alley certain of you were on Sade de Salaberry today and that area there you see cholera burying grounds it's right under St. Patrick's High School today and the Catholic burying grounds well Notre Dame de Quebec at the time purchased the property from the government and they set up a uh, cemetery but the Irish had one half of it and the French Canadians had the other half for a while Go ahead, Joe. The Irish were determined they wanted their own church and they wanted a parish. So they purchased land that we, some of us saw this morning, and they started erecting a church in 1831. Cornerstone was laid in 1832, but then a cholera epidemic hit. Everything was suspended for a while, and eventually it was opened in July 1833. The church was (coughs) Lengthened And there were galleries put in over the years Because the population kept increasing There were about 5,000 Irish Catholics at that time In Quebec City, so it was a significant Number, at one point in the mid-1860s The Irish population here Was about 25% Of the Quebec City's population You've got to realize at the time The French-speaking population Had not started to Converge on Quebec City. They were in the outlying areas, but as their families grew and some of the younger male subjects weren't going to be inheriting the land, so they would move in here And with industrialization. Well, there were many more jobs to be had here in town, so when when they came in, the French part of the percentage of the population increased, and after 1860, there was not much Irish immigration to Quebec City. 1856, The Irish had been trying for a while to get a a parish. And the problem is in Quebec City, parishes have a a geographic area attributed to them. The Catholics of Quebec, English-speaking Catholics, wanted a parish that encompassed the whole city. In other words, it was superimposed on the other French-language parishes, and the diocese was not enthusiastically in support of that. So what happened was they addressed the the Parliament of the United Canadas, at the time we were what we'd say Ontario and Quebec were in an entity and they succeeded in getting a private bill passed that created the parish of the Catholics of Quebec speaking the English language now since the church was already St. Patrick's colloquially it's referred to as St. Patrick's parish, it's always been known by that name Go ahead. This, man, sorry, this man here was the Irish priest who was tending to the community here he was born in 1796 in Abiliche he immigrated here in 1817 he studied for the priesthood here in Quebec and he was a priest assigned to the diocese Notre Dame de Quebec but who was specifically uh, given the responsibility for the Irish he was there for three years then they sent him to St. John's New Brunswick for three years some felt that he was supporting the Irish too much then he came back in 1828, and what you see in his left hand is the architectural plan for the, para- for the church that is on McMahon Street down here. At the time it was St. Helene Street, but it's now been named McMahon Street in his honor. Go ahead, Joe. Now this is the church as it looked originally. And Thomas, Thomas Bayardet is a famous... Uh, church architect, there are four generations of them, a father, a grandfather a father, a son and a nephew and there are, so you, you. and this church was enlarged twice and behind the hall there was behind the church there was a parish hall where the St. Patrick's Catholic and Literary Society met and had publications for those who were interested cool. this is what the interior of the church looked like a uh, very uh, very elaborate, and you see the, they had the balconies that were added on later on to accommodate more Catholics and this is what it looks like in the old days when it was full so this is the, uh, I'm pretty sure, standard Sunday celebration at St. Patrick's Church now when you have a church, of course eventually you need a presbytery to lodge your, the parish priests and this is in the, right in the vicinity of the church. It was built in 1854. The building is still there today, and it's uh, into, divided into apartments there now. And the Father McMahon that you saw a few minutes ago, he died in 1851, so he didn't get to live there. But those that succeeded him lived there, and there were accommodations for eight to ten priests, even at the time there were only one or two in the parish. 1874 the Redemptorists were brought in by the diocese and they, uh, the Redemptorists were a pretty uh, demanding group <laughs> their initial demand was everything the parish owned had to be given to them and of course this led to a revolt in the parish and they didn't really get well received when they first arrived now they were uh, they, they arrived from Philadelphia but they had sort of how would I put it, drafted a lot of their Irish recruits in the states to send them up here. So the Irish up the, the, the core of priests here and they, they arrived in 1874 and eventually, you know, things settled and they were here for 125 years. So these are, this is taken 25 years later. And as you can see, they were well fed while they were in Quebec City. <laughs> okay, and this is behind one of the buildings you see that we, we walked by this morning. Schooling was a problem also. So they they wanted to have schools, obviously, for the young Irish men. The women tended to go to the convents that were run by orders of nuns. They'd have an English language class within a French language school. So this is the first school that was opened up. That's near the St. John's Gate. The street right there was was run by the Christian brothers. They arrived in 1843. Now, A major part of the Irish population in the 1840s lived down on Champlain Street. How many were on the terrace while they were here in front of the shadow? Many of you? Champlain Street is just below the terrace down below and it runs along the river. Now there's been a lot of landfills so it looks larger but essentially it was a meandering road down there and in in the beginning it wasn't even in Quebec City. It was was known as Prédéville near the city. Eventually the city limits were extended. So this was a school there too. Once the schooling was underway for a certain number of years became, it was suggested that it would be interesting if the Irish boys could have some commercial training so they could go more into business. Okay, Like the religious institutions tend to guide you more towards uh, being a lawyer, being a doctor, being a priest, and the business part of it was not really that paid that much attention to. So the Christian Brothers started asking the Archbishop of Quebec if it would be possible to set up a commercial academy and they were successful. The building you see on the top left, that we saw this morning, was rented for a while until they they got the chance to build the building that is down on the bottom left but it's now a magnificent parking lot. <laughs> then they moved up to the the one on the top right, which is right near Quebec City Hall. You probably passed it. And eventually, as all these classical colleges were done away with in Quebec, we now have a system where you have what we call CEGEPs or junior colleges. CEGEP is an acronym for Collège d'enseignement général et professionnel, and it became a French language. College in Saint Foy. Now, the six from 1865 to 1871, it was strictly an English language institution. Then it became a bilingual institution, and as the high schools developed at Saint Patrick's High School, well, then it the, the Irish students sort of stayed there, and the the academy became a French language institution although it offered night courses my father went there for a few courses this is the ground area around St. Patrick's Church and you can see that St. Patrick's Church is up there RC, you can see behind they got RC Institute that's St. Patrick's uh, Literary Institute Elgin is there and you see further over they got the Commercial Academy once they had the, the church there the Commercial Academy the two schools I showed you before, they decided they the, the parish decided it would be better if the schools were merged so they built a school right in front of the church and it opened in 1884 so that's it there then of course the parish needed a, the old cemetery that they were operating under Salaberry well the move, as the city expanded the temptation was, well let's find something outside the city so they they purchased the Woodfield estate, which was the estate of a various lumber barons, but the manor house had burnt down twice, so, and the lumber industry was on a bit of a decline, so the lumber barons were liquidating their properties, or were selling them because their often their children were not interested in sticking around here, they went back to the Great Britain <coughs> or Scotland so this was the cemetery that was opened in 1879, there are now over 20,000 people buried there including many that were in the previous cemetery and are in a common plot there this is one of the buildings that's still there from the Woodfield era it was the stable for the 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 owner of the estate during St. Pat's tenure it was a chapel for a while, it was a warehouse for a while and now it's a building in search of a vocation The school that you saw down on Champlain Street was acquired by the parish in 1885 and they opened the Chapel of Our Lady of Perpetual Help. Now it's the same building you saw before except from the the water side and there's an extra floor underneath it on that side because there's a slope there. It looks small on one side and larger on the others and of course the the two annexes at the end were put on when it was converted in the 60s to a condo establishment, okay? Now, the Irish that arrived in Quebec, this is what they would have seen, especially those that arrived the Great Famine era or a few years after, like my family arrived in 1850, this is what they would have seen in Quebec City. Timber coves all the way from well, I'm sure a lot of you saw the Quebec Bridge, so from the Quebec Bridge right down to the, in front of the of Frontenac, there were timber coves all along the St. Lawrence River And this is what timber coves received. They received rafts of square timber from as far away as the Great Lakes, the Ottawa River. They were rafted down to Quebec and a raft would have been a wooden rectangular assembly with different sticks of wood put on it according to what essence they were. And some were more buoyant than others, so you could put more on there, and they would come down here and they would be stored in one of the coves waiting to be shipped over to Great Britain, to Ireland, even to some of the Scandinavian countries. So when you arrived and you were one of the less fortunate Irish of, say, the 1848, 1849, or even 1847, you didn't really arrive as an immigrant with a lot of belongings and you saw this going on and you say, well I can work there. So the Irish along Champlain Street rapidly took control of the loading of timber to be shipped overseas. Now this is a six month a year operation because in November the river freezes over and it stays that way until early May. So they would work six months and a lot of them would go down to the southern United States by train and work down there, leaving the families here. Okay, so they'd go down there. Some of them decided they liked the Southern United States, so they didn't come back. The family went down, but there's so there we have some down. Unfortunately, in the area of Corpus Christi, of Texas, and that, their families that were in the vicinity that went down there now they're bit maybe in trouble there now. Now this is what square timber looks like, okay, and you can tell by the size of the people there that if these are sticks of wood that are sometimes. 60 feet long, two feet by two feet, and you've got to get them into the hold of a ship. And this is done by muscular power. So, and you would work eight to ten hours a day depending on the period. So rapidly the Irish ship laborers decided that they would sort of take control of things and they would only work with their fellow compatriots because these were the most qualified. And they wouldn't use steam power because it was too dangerous and it was too dangerous, but it also increased the workload for everybody okay, so this is how they it looked when they were loading, this is an 1870s picture, when they're loading the square timber into the holes of a ship, you had the younger people who were floaters they would take the, the square timber from the sites that you saw where it was up on wood and they would float them out to the side of a ship where there were people there ready to hoist it in, so you had the winchers up top and you had another group of people inside that were the holers who would place the logs according to their, their length and because it was very important to get a balanced cargo because if it shifted when you were in, out at sea you were in trouble. There was also a question of getting the most timber in there for the, 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 the voyage back to wherever it was going. So this was a very difficult job, very demanding physically uh, it's raining out, we're not going to work today, didn't really apply back then. (laughs) You were paid so much a day, those three categories of employment that I mentioned had a different rate, you know sometimes it was a dollar fifty for the floaters uh, a day, two dollars for the hoisters and three dollars for the holders because they had the most difficult operation. So they eventually decided we better really look after our own, because what happened when somebody died earlier they used to pass the hat to bury them. Okay? Because they were living, like, from day to day. So if somebody died, all of a sudden you had to look after the widow in a certain way, and you had to, you know, bury them. So they, they attempted, for many, for several years, to try and for and get recognition from the government to form a benevolent society. Now, a benevolent society is basically workmen's compensation and a funeral cooperative. That's the way I describe it. And they collected 25 cents a month from their members went into a pot if you were hurt on the job they paid you so much a a month for your, till you recuperated and when you died they gave twenty dollars to your widow I sometimes say facetiously they also gave a list of the single members of the association because if you look at the marriage records uh, somebody, you know, you see enough. this is a time where if you were suddenly widowed and you had a couple of kids you were on Champlain Street and the community was there, well you got a proposal very quickly from somebody else okay and it was always, uh, it was usually in your best interest to take it up too okay sometimes it was even a brother of the previous husband and things like that it's a reality of uh, life in that time period of course once you got this organization you were able to uh, pretty well act as a labor union at a time when labor unions were outlawed, that didn't exist. Any two people that talked to him about their wages could be accused of uh, what was it called? Anyway, it was an infraction in common law. So, but it didn't stop the, the Irish from holding strikes, closing the port, and they were dealing with the ship captains. Now a ship captain could make two cross-ocean voyages a year. So if you close the port down for ten days, you were making the second trip back a little more difficult to imagine because they didn't want to get here very late in the season and have to, you know, confront some very bad weather in the St. Lawrence. So you had a real negotiate bargaining power to negotiate with these people and usually the captains capitulated, much to the chagrin of the lumber exporters in town here. Now, these are the names that are mentioned in the Act Incorporated Ship Laborers. And when Quebec City merged in the early 2000s with the other suburbs, we had a lot of streets that had the same name. There was one in Sillery and one in Quebec and one in St. foy so they had to rename the streets. And I submitted the name of Richard Burke, because he was the of the seven initial members, he was the one who lived the longest in Quebec City because he died in 1914. He lived here for over 65 years. And I was lucky enough they decided to retain his name and put it on a little street down in Lowertown. Now at the time I was really worried, well I was worried a bit say, because names that weren't French or French sounding were not always received well in some of the suburbs, so I went down to check out this street where they were going to put it and it was pure joy. There were no addresses on the street. (laughs) Because it's 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 an area where the buildings on both sides of the street are former warehouses that have been converted into residential apartment buildings, but the entrances are on the two other streets and not on that street. So we got we got that one in the books. Now, if I look like I'm enthusiastic about ship laborers and things like that, this is just the green dots are the ship laborers in my ancestors or family, you see and Richard Burke happens to be one of them although I only found that out about 10 or 15 years ago, you know I'm the O'Connors and you look at the first two generations were ship laborers and so all of these people were ship laborers and, and I was a union president for a while at one of the public colleges here so I usually fall on that side of the negotiating table, you see now this is a little set to that occurred on Champlain Street in 1879 that was a period where the, the workload was diminishing in the port. Uh, ship construction had taken to other materials. Square timber wasn't important. We still shipped timber out, but others in other configurations. And the, the ship laborers at that time had five sections. On this side of the river, there was the Champlain Street one, and there was the one down in the St. Charles River where there was a lot of shipbuilding and they did less work. So they felt that they weren't getting the uh, a fair share of the of the jobs available so they they seceded and they cut the rates and they formed their own association which called was called union canadien okay now as i told people this morning at the time canadien quebecers that we call quebecers today at the time they were canadien and the others were you know it's really strangers okay so they decided they were not going to do what the ship laborers usually did they went on their anniversary, once a year, they did, on a, they did a, a long parade through town to show off, to show that they were responsible citizens, disciplined, courteous, sober and they'd march all across town and salute the newspaper offices, the parliament and that So they, the, the other group decided they'd do the same thing. Now the city authorities intervened and said, well maybe you should not go on Champlain Street this march, and they said, the Irish at the time, there was the five sections used to do this march, they go everywhere, we're going everywhere so when they got down below on Champlain Street, there was a reception party, and they were set upon by people up top throwing things down, and by, there was gunfire, two were killed, 30 were injured and martial law was declared in Quebec City, they brought the the uh, militia out, and they bar- they they put a line across Champlain Street so that nobody could get in and nobody could get out. And then what do you do? You call the priest of St Patrick's Parish and you call the priest of the French Parish, the rectors. You get them in with the city officials and you negotiate a peace settlement, which they did. Okay. So after that, the work was separated a bit differently. Now this goes to show you. This is the only numbers that I found regarding the ship laborers. Now at the time in Quebec City we have a population of 60-70,000 and on Champlain Street there are close to 2,000 who are Irish who are working in the industry. So when we talk about what allowed the Irish population to establish themselves in Quebec City and to flourish the ship laborers, to my mind, are one of the most important elements of the whole equation because it's nice to have access to Catholic religion and schools, but you got to eat your three squares a day. Okay, and this is what guaranteed that, and if you were hurt, you had a support group at your disposal. Disasters happen. This is the landslide of September 1889 on Champlain Street. What you see up on the top corner there is the edge of the terrace. So if you were on the terrace, and what you see there, like the upper part of the buildings these are two story buildings and they're not on the the cliff side of the road, they're on the other side, so the whole it was a rock slide more than a landslide, it came down and it wiped everything out right up to the water's edge there were 45 casualties 32 of them were Irish Catholics who were buried in St. Patrick's Cemetery, they had this huge funeral, they ran out of uh, Wagons on which to put the the coffins, because it was a so there were so many. I mean, obviously there were kids, parents, sometimes both parents, and you know, if you look at my family, where were they? Then they were few houses that way. There's a lot of people that I know in the Quebec that their families live there, but they weren't in that area. They were further up. So. And of course, the other thirteen were all English-speaking, also, but from Baptists, Anglicans, Presbyterians. One poor lady was visiting; and she got, she lost her life there too. Others were injured. Just a little anecdote. I got a call from Toronto from someone who he asked me if I knew about this. And of course, I I, I did know about it. I'd given a talk on it at Irish Heritage at the 125th anniversary so he said do you, know the, do you know where the graves are I said yeah I got pictures of them so she said my relative is so and so she lost her husband and her three children she had lost another child before that she buried with him I said no nope. okay he said uh, she remarried she was in the hospital for a year because she was badly injured and she married and he gave me the name of the next fellow she buried with him no nope. <laughs> So then he said, well, where the hell is she? So I said, I better look into it for you. He said, look, she was in the 1901 census, and she's not in the 1911 census. Therefore, she died somewhere in those years. Well, I said, we'll see. So I went to the National Archives where they have on microfilm a whole series of file cards that list all the births, marriage, and deaths, And I found her so I phoned him back, I said look I said she didn't die between 1901 and 1911 no, when she died I said 1936 well where was she well I said sometime before 1911 she was put in the Quebec lunatic asylum and she spent the rest of her life down east on this side of the river there was a a facility and she was listed there as sort of a They have I forget the term, but it's a a term that doesn't really describe the fact that you're in there and you're not getting out, you know. So he was all happy with that. So the ship laborers are viewed as the most important labor union in Quebec City in the 19th century, which I'm proud of. Now other groups that were active with the Irish community, we had an Ancient Order of Hibernians here. And they used to come out with their horses for various St. Patrick's Day Parade and that. And the St. Patrick's Literary Institute, in those days, you know, you didn't necessarily have a lot of books at home. Or you So, you know, certain people would go to the Institute and read up on what the news were. And they used to organize the various uh, St. Patrick's Day uh, celebrations and that. Now this is where they ended up on St. Anne Street, which is just above where we are and they, at one point, they had a, a building right behind the church but when the church was expanded, they moved up here and they bought a Presbyterian church that they rechristened Tara Hall nice name and it was their facility where they put on their shows right beside the, their office building, if you want now my, this is my grandfather John O'Connor and, of course, he, this is taken in the 40s, and he was a member, probably the 30s, actually. He was a member of Literary Institute and the AOH. And these are their insignia that they would wear. One side was colored, and when you went to a wake or a funeral, you flipped it over, and the other side was black. Okay? And he was a provincial policeman. So the first two generations are ship laborers, he's a provincial policeman. Now, in the 20th century, the Quebecers, Quebec City residents are trying to get out of the old part of town, so they start heading westward, and St. Patrick's Parish and the schools were in the wave that moved out. Of course, Grosse Hill, the Celtic Cross, was erected in 1909, and and this is what the Lazaretto went when I saw it first. Okay, it was the building you saw there. Okay, it looked, made, looked, sickly, looked sickly, you know. And of course they had to repair it and make it what it is today. And I'm assuming that you saw the part that was in the on the far right that was donated by the Irish government in 2010, their first donation to Grosse Hill. The Irish in Quebec started St. Lawrence College, classical college. I got up one morning and I was told you're going to a new school. I said, where is it? Way out of town. I was 11 years old, so I went way out of town. Now it's on the campus of Laval University. Okay, So we went to the Grand Seminary while they were building it. Then I finished two years at classical college. It was four years of high school, four years of college. And you got a diploma from Laval University, Bachelor of Arts. So then the other school was, they built their own here. When the classical colleges were abolished, Well, they had to go somewhere else until they found how they could affiliate with a college. So they went to the bowling alley, which is by the green dot there. Okay, they've taken the pins out in the alleys. Okay, but I mean it was still a bowling alley, and that's where they are now. They're trying their Saint Lawrence campus of a three-city, and of course these are the 26 original students. That was the whole campus. They call us the pioneers. Okay, and 13 were from Quebec City. Most of them are of Irish uh, descent and the graduates, I'm the sleepy guy up there there were only seven of us left, you know okay, I'm the first graduate Celtic Stone, the Celtic Cross on Champlain Street, We haven't seen it it's well worth a visit okay, there's two dates there because the stone was supposed to come across on the Jeannie Johnson, but the Jeannie Johnson didn't make it in 2000 so then James Callery, who donated the stone to us sent over everything except the capping stone, which is the the triangular piece up top which has the very provocative images on both sides Shiel and the gigs which are the male and female sex organs uh, enlarged quite a bit <laughs> okay so then we we had a ceremony in 2000 and it was the capping stone was coming over on the genie which only arrived in 2003 the, <laughs> Mr. Callery had lost patience the capping stone had already arrived but we were we waited for 2003 and we put it up then with another ceremony. Now this here you see Marianne O'Gallagher, she's the one who, has, who who determined all the designs on the cross. She's one of the founders of Irish Heritage Quebec, sister of Charity of Halifax for many years. When she retired from teaching, she retired from the uh, community because she wanted to work on Irish history in Quebec City and she's one of the main persons responsible for having a national park on Grosse Hill because her grandfather was in the A.O.H., and her father was uh, you know, the uh, there at the, the time. The lady on the left is Aileen Ann Brannigan, who was the sculptress who did all the work. Okay. Oh. This is James Callery at the inauguration ceremony. I was lucky. I was on the committee. I had the best job. I was a chauffeur for ten days. <laughs> Never answered so many bloody questions my whole life. <laughs> my God, he had questions, but he was, you know, interesting and nice man. This is Stokestown Park Manor and Famine Museum that he acquired. I haven't got time to explain the circumstances. The genie came over in 2003. Arrived here at the end of September. We thought it was going to be bad. Soon as it turned the, the bend in the river, started to get sunny. The whole weekend was sunny. We got sunburned out there on Saturday. We had 3,000 people who visited the ship and paid $9 to go see it. So it was a tremendous success. Well, this is the St. Patrick's parade that's back. That was Joe in one of his, his younger era there, you know. You know, And I always get in the back pictures and crowds. You see, I'm way in the back there. This is Mariana, who was the Grand Marshal. Fortunately, she passed away about two months later. Now, this is the National Famine Commemoration in Glasnevin Cemetery in 2016. And the Celtic cross that is there was designed by Aileen Ann Brannigan, who did ours here, so, and she is now uh, one of the top three or four designers in Ireland, and I'm very, very proud of it, and I'm happy that, you know, she's had such success because she does wonderful work. Uh, Thank you for your attention.